This is Educasis, a podcast about the grumpier side of software development, mostly, but not always, Apple-related, featuring myself and my co-host, the pinky in the brain of Objective-C. I'm Andrew Pontius. And I'm Will French. This is episode 49. It's Saturday, May 4th, 2013. And our topic this week, Wolf? Cocoa Pods. Cocoa Pods. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, so sharp-eared listeners will note that we're recording episode 49 on the same date that we recorded episode 48. Uh, so Wolf won't be available next weekend, so we're recording early. Um, but uh, you should still get it at the normal time on uh, on Sunday, May 12th. So with that out of the way, uh, and I don't think we have any other follow-up or anything like that, right? Right. All right. Take it away. Okay. So uh, have you actually had a chance to look at and or use CocoaPods yet, Andrew? Um, well, I've heard about it from you. Um, you had mentioned it in one of our earlier episodes. Um, but no, I haven't had a, a, a reason to use it yet because it's a way to keep things, to keep the versions of things updated. Is that one way to put it? Yeah, I would say it's, it's, a, it's really for kind of managing libraries that you'd use in your code. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, and also their dependencies. Right. And um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's probably, if you have, you know, you say that you you know kind of work on these larger apps and that for many years at a time all that so you know once you set up those dependencies um you don't have to do it so much again and again right it's mostly if you work on smaller apps or if you write a lot of small apps that and this becomes more of a kind of a chore having to deal with all this stuff and so that aims to make it easier of course then going through the updates like especially if you work on an app that has a long time frame that you know, keeping on top of updates on your dependencies and keep those up to date is a bit of a chore in itself. So sure, yeah, that's true. Uh, one thing that I found is that you you kind of want to do all of that at, at, at one time. You want to when you're updating, you know, when the next major revision is when you say, okay, now we're going to take a snapshot of all the of all our dependencies because you wouldn't want to update those in the middle of a release cycle, right? Mm-hmm. Good point. Yes, and so uh, CocoaPods is a, uh, a third-party uh, solution to the the library and, and dependency problem that uh, Apple pr- developers have. Uh, Apple itself, I wouldn't say they're hostile to providing a solution, but I don't think they ever w- really will. Uh, Apple kind of thinks that you know they, they supply all these nice APIs for you, and why would you need to go anywhere else? <laughs> right. <laughs> But in the real world, we need to use uh, other people's libraries for getting our work done. And there's actually a, a good selection of non-Apple code libraries out there now. And there always have been. Like uh, even like going back to the next days, right? You have like you know, in Mojera, I use Misc Merge, which is a templating system. Of course, you know, Apple would never give you a templating system. You know, and and so uh, it's it's. Um, it's quite common, and I would say the libraries are definitely getting more numerous in the in the bold iOS era, and uh, it's, it's a good thing. It's uh, all around good, except I don't think Apple is ever going to be interested in making it easy for you to use those third-party libraries. In fact, yeah. I've even I've witnessed like open hostility to the idea of using third-party libraries, which I'll talk a little bit about later. But I want to talk about uh, kind of CocoaPods first. Uh, so it's really easy to get started with CocoaPods. Um, you just pretty much gem install CocoaPods, and then you run. It gives you this pod command, P-O-D, and uh, then you type pod setup. And I even forget what that does, but that's, you gotta do that. 
And I, I should preface all this explanation that I tried using CocoaPods uh, a few months ago, and I haven't really used it since. And so that might be a bit telling right there. Um, so, but and things might have changed. Also, my memory memory is fuzzy because I didn't really take notes while I was doing it. I was just kind of doing off on the fly. So, uh, take all that in, into consideration. And so, how this works is that the library that you want to use uh, has a pod spec, and this is a specification that tells you the name, what version number it is, how you should get to, you know, the the how to access that code base base based on Git. You, and uh, an important facet of this, oh, what is and its dependencies. An important facet of this is that the pod spec doesn't necessar- does not necessarily need to be written and provided by the library author itself. As a matter of fact, if you go into the uh, CocoaPods website, uh, and uh, I apparently have two libraries uh, up on CocoaPods, and I haven't, I did not write the pod spec for either one of those. Um, I think I didn't. Anyway, I, I, my memory is fuzzy on what I do or do not do. And uh, yeah, so other people can write uh, the pod specs for libraries even for people who are ignorant of CocoaPods, like me. And um, all you really need is... Uh, I, yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't write this, because I got a pull request that one of the things you really do need is to have uh, get tags on things, so you can point at a specific tag number, or a tag ID, I guess, tag name. So that's... And uh, so what it, how it works is that... Uh, so you have these libraries that have pod specs that describe them. And on your project, your client... Uh, you write this thing called a pod file, capital P-O-D-F-I-L-E. And you write out in this pretty simple language saying, I have this dependency and this version number, and this other dependency and this version number, and then you run the command pod install. And what happens is that uh, the pod tool will read your pod file, will track down all the top-level dependencies you've listed, and find all its dependencies and all their dependencies, and we'll go down all the all the way down the tree and pull those all down for you. And then it will write out a uh, a project file, a like Xcode project file, that contains all those dependencies. And then it will build a, an Xcode workspace that kind of uh, wraps your project and and it makes it so that Xcode can figure out. You know, you have your project and you have all the dependencies. And at that point, then you can, like, pound import all the header files you need to do. And um, so this is actually my main sticking point with CocoaPods. I really like the idea of CocoaPods, but one of the reasons I found myself not using it was because of the the Xcode workspace kind of requirement, which turns out to not be a requirement, but uh, I thought it was, that... um, I don't really tend to use workspaces. I find them clumsy, and I understand why they exist. And uh, they're d- definitely, in some ways, nicer, where you know you can kind of just, like put projects next to each other, and Xcode can just kind of figure out that they're related, and do the right thing in terms of figure out how to how that one depends on the other, whatever. And so that's pretty nice. But uh, just having that extra file around, and always remember to open that and not the XC project file. Um, that is what I guess. Is this, is, well, you, yeah. Go ahead. For, I would say that you should probably at this point you should only use workspaces if you've got multiple projects that you would otherwise have to handle uh, separately. Yeah, but isn't I mean I've I've seen people kind of argue it the other way that you just always should start with X with uh, Xcode pro- workspaces. Well, because you need a project underneath anyway. Right. I would say no. 
Yeah, it um, does strike me as kind yeah. of like another layer of things to having to worry about. Well, but here's so here's the deal, though. Uh, although I did never, I, I didn't talk about this with anyone specifically when I was at Apple, but the way I see it is that workspaces are the framework into which they will eventually uh, uh, insert a new format because the project file format is just ancient, right? And they need to replace it with something. So when they do, you'll still be able to have your workspace open and you'll still build exactly the same way because you're building the workspace, not the, you know, you're building the, what do you call it inside of that? And any case, that's what I'm assuming is going to happen eventually. Like, so eventually everyone, if you are using a workspace, you'll be able to just basically continue to do that as is. Hmm. Whereas if you, if you rely too much on projects, you, I don't know. You, those will eventually be replaced by something else. Okay. Yeah. It's, sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to derail there. No, no, you didn't derail. I have a, I have a nice long list here that's keeping me on track. Um, yeah. The the other thing about XE Workspace that I'm, you know, probably because I don't use them very much, I'm also confused in terms of, like, whether, like, uh, is, like, is schemes, like, is that attached to my workspace? Is that attached to my projects? I don't really know the ownership model there. And I haven't really had to really hunt that down. So it's just a, there's a, like... Pretty much everything else, I think I can figure out what owns what and what the scope is of everything is. But I, ha- I have a blog post for you about schemes that I can that I wrote a while ago. You know, I I read all your blog posts, so I must have just completely forgot about it. So yeah, we should definitely put a link in there about that. Mm-hmm. But um, so I mentioned how I'm really not a fan of the uh, Xcode workspaces type stuff, and uh, so Tony Arnold actually pointed out that uh, you, you can add. So I mentioned how the the pod uh, pod install command actually creates an Xcode project for all your dependencies. Kind of, I, I believe it's uh, for all of them. It kind of amalgamates them all together. Um, at least that's my understanding. It might be one per each, and then somehow there's a, like a, a super project for them. But anyway, there ends up being a, a basically a a pods dot Xcode project that you can use and you can uh, add to you as sub project or as at least as a related project to your main project. So you don't need to actually go the Xcode workspaces route, which is pretty nice. And so um, kind of given that high-level overview, um, I want to talk about the uh, criticisms of uh, CocoaPods. And I've already mentioned the kind of like the clumsiness of Xcode workspaces, and because CocoaPods relies on that uh, infrastructure, it, it, by, it ends up being kind of clumsy itself. But uh, Jonathan White, uh, as we know, know and love as Schwa on Twitter, um, and on GitHub too, uh, he he wrote uh, he took a look at CocoaPods a while back, and he actually was nice enough to write up a, a bug that we'll link to, where he kind of uh, goes through his criticisms of uh, of what uh, of his issues with CocoaPods. So I thought I kind of walk through these and address them. Um, first, he kind of mentions that this is it doesn't really work. It doesn't work how Cocoa programmers work today, where typically you see this uh, library you want to use. So you grab the source code and you want to integrate it and uh, into your current Xcode project, and that you're done. You use this pretty much the end of the day. Right. That's generally how I would handle this sort of thing, is I just throw it in as individual source code files. Right. And uh, you could see why it would be nicer just to say, hey, install this project instead of having to pull down a tarball or, or some other Git sub module or what have you. Um, is it, so, so this is a, obviously a lot kind of more intense 
thing or what CocoaPods is doing. So that, and um, kind of the answer to that is that uh, you know X and the Xcode workspace stuff. And this is pretty much what it's designed to do. It's designed to allow you to have these other projects that your your main project relies on, but can be built. Uh, implicitly and kind of taking these things that are separate, but you want to unify to produce a product. So it and this is you know even though it's clumsy, this is really what it was born to do, and uh, that's because we're not using this uh, today. Uh, it's not necessarily doesn't mean that this is the way we shouldn't be doing. We we should be doing things. Um, another issue that he brings up is dependency resolution that uh, Schwa actually didn't want. Uh, this feature, and he, he says that I'll quote him here. In my experience, very few Objective C libraries have much in the way of dependencies, and I think, unlike Ruby Gems or Python modules, Objective C developers will strongly care, care what dependencies are made as part of the app. Which is true. Um, I do care a lot about dependencies uh, for two reasons. Uh, the first is technical. I I want to kind of vet the code, understand how it works. And the second is, a, I would say, legal or political, where I care deeply about you know the license of the code and is it is it non-viral for me to bring into my commercial projects. Um, right. Well, well one other thing uh, is when like <clears throat> you mentioned how you got set up in CocoaPods. Are you going to go over when the the updates occur? Um, I believe you have to manually track those. It's not like you get a notification saying, "Hey." I've opened this Xcode project, and there's a newer version. Do you want to upgrade? Right. right? You do need to be somewhat proactive. I, I think there's I, – I don't know my sh- for sure because I hadn't gone far enough with a project using CocoaPods where I had this happen where I knew there was an update for a project, a, a dependency that I had. But I imagine there's some – you probably can do pods update or something like that and probably get newer versions of things. Right. So it would make a new – my assumption here is that it would make a new version – of the Xcode projects and a new version of the Xcode workspace for you if you say update. I would imagine so. Yeah. I imagine that'd be also an in-place update so that uh, right. it wouldn't make sense for it to like make a brand new one. Right. Because then that would just be pain. But you know, like you have three sub-modules or whatever and you only want to update two of them, you know, kind of do that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, that, I haven't even tried that, but I would imagine you'd be able to do that. I know that yeah. uh, in the in the pod file, that's the file in your client that specifies what your dependencies are, um, that you, spec- you can specify the version number of what you want there. And I believe you can be kind of ambiguous. You can say, I want 1.2 of something. And so you're using 1.23, and 124 comes out, and you do pod update or whatever the command may or may not be. Uh, and it will. It, that should be an update. But if you s- specify, I want one, two, five of this, and no other, I don't. I think you'll be locked to that version. Uh, would the command be uh, open the pod bay doors? Huh? <laughs> You're just waiting for an opportunity to bring that in. I, I was okay. Yeah. Um, so you continue to quote Schwa here. Uh, I tried to write standalone open source libraries. It's a huge benefit to everyone. Uh, Objective C is dynamic, and the linker can't dead strip unused code from LinkedIn libraries. So depending on a large library for just some useful uh, utility classes and our categories can be very wasteful. It's not so much such a big deal on the desktop, but possibly a huge deal on iOS. I'd say most Cocoa libraries are standalone for good reasons. Avoiding dependency hell isn't necessarily one of them, although it may contribute somewhat. So that's kind of the first knock against why I w- and why most co- uh, third-party Cocoa libraries 
our SAM loan is that we are really bad with dealing with dependencies. We have basically no system before CocoaPods for dealing with this, uh, except you know totally man- manually. So it's it's a huge amount of pain. So it's just I know myself. I'll I'll have uh, this this recently. I was uh, working on a chunk of code that I was to give open source, and I I didn't didn't use my own JRENUM class because I didn't want to have that dependency, even though it would have saved me a good bunch of work. And so I'm I'm very aware of that dependency hell pain. Um, in terms of the code bloat that's associated with this, uh, yes, is is a it's a a definite issue that uh, we, we, because of the, the dynamic nature of Objective C, uh, at at compile time and at even at link time, that there's not enough information known about whether a class can re- be removed. Uh, that's pretty much because you could you could you know you could put up a, a panel and ask the user to type in a name of a class and a method, and it could look that up and send, try to at runtime send a message to that class, an instance of the class. Um, this is and, please, you know, th- things, things like do that. <laughs> well, you can. Do, I mean, th- things like Fscript do this, right? Uh, it's uncommon, but it's there and supported directly supported by the runtime. So yeah. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but in terms of the depend, so I so I think it is a bit a, a bit of a deal. These the these libraries that get larger. I'll have a little bit more to say about this, but that is kind of a knock against it. Um. And then he uh, Schwa went on to this kind of we kind of uh, he mentioned something and and uh, which brought up the topic to my mind and in the tweet he was listening to some other criticisms of it that uh, it apparently has a Mac Ruby re- requirement and I actually didn't know this when I installed CocoaPods uh, this isn't a problem for me I don't care really how CocoaPods is implemented uh, Mac Ruby actually might be the worst of both worlds in terms of whether something is written in Ruby or Objective C is like Mac Ruby is both, and like the number of people who actually can deal with Mac Ruby is probably pretty small compared to uh, you know almost by definition, it's the you know the the two circles, the intersection of those two two communities. So it's probably a few, not so many people that can actually work in Mac Ruby. But uh, if if Mac Ruby was installed as part of the requirement for installing CocoaPods, I didn't notice and. I don't know if this is a recent thing. If the new, newer versions require Mac Ruby and my version didn't, or what ha- what happened, or if I just didn't know it's again installed. But either way, it wasn't really a problem for me. <clears throat> he also mentioned the horrible pod file format, and I don't know if he's talking about the pod file or, or the pod specs itself. But uh, the pods, the pod files seem to be. I think that actually they're probably both kind of Ruby in, in terms of uh, that. You, they're using Ruby as a poor man's domain-specific language. Uh, you've probably seen a lot of that. Where he, he, it's basically it's uh, like method declarations and and invocations, but it kind of looks like it's not really Ruby code because you're dropping all the parentheses you can, all that. Um, th- that said, this um, this leads to the problem where the pod spec format is. You know, Turing complete. It's it's and it's not, not just like in the like theoretical sense, like C plus plus templates. I mean, this is your you're putting when you uh, go to install uh, these uh, Cocoa Pods. It's actually executing uh, these Cocoa specs and uh, from the libraries, and those are obviously those could do anything they want to your system. So that's definitely a problem. And it's, but even if I, I believe they are moving away from a directly executable 
a specification format into something more like JSON or something that's this, you know, pure data that isn't this, you know, evaled. But uh, that said, you know, if you go to build an Xcode project, of course, one of those one of those things in the Xcode project can be a run script build phase. So it's always dangerous to uh, build an Xcode project without first looking inside of it. But I'm, I'm sure you, well, I'm not sure you're guilty, but I, I'm definitely guilty of, you know, downloading projects off the internets and hitting, hitting build and go and not even looking to see if there was a run script build phase. And, you know, maybe this uploaded my address book to path. I don't know. Wow. Yeah. And so, uh, the apparently that uh, CocoaPods has, has gotten enough heat as a project that uh, they actually have on their wiki page common misconceptions. And uh, we're going to run through these. Uh, so CocoaPods is not ready for prime time yet. And um, th- this is basically their point that it hasn't reached 1.0 yet, that they haven't really gone out and evangelized themselves yet. They have really, in- quote-unquote, introduced themselves to the community because this is a project that's still very much in active development, so they are still, still making changes. And uh, a lot of these kind of criticisms, uh, I've went through the issue tracker a little bit, and they've, you know, they've made a lot of changes based on feedback. So that's, uh, uh, and they continue to make uh, changes. So it, I, in that way, I almost uh, hesitated to talk about it on this episode, uh, just because it might be better just to wait for that 1.0. But on the other hand, it, I think it's gotten enough traction in the community, and enough people are have heard about it and are use and using it that it's worth talking about. And also, it's interesting to me the evolution of the design of this thing, and uh, this kind of can be a, like a checkpoint about how the project existed before the 1.0. Um, another the uh, n- another uh, common mix- misconception is CocoaPods doesn't do X, so it's unusable. And he points out, hey, you know, we just don't search Twitter look f- looking for feature requests. You know, please chip in if there's if there's something you want to do. And it's actually quite capable as it exists right now. And the next common misconception is that CocoaPods doesn't do dependency resolution. And it turns out that, as I mentioned, that CocoaPods does, in fact, do dependency resolution. But the, it, a key point here is that it does not automatically resolve conflicts. And that if you have um, you know, library A that relies on library C and you have library B that also relies on library C, bad things will happen if library C has a 1.0 and 2.0 and they have different, you know, maybe different class setups or whatever that make them incompatible with each other. Then you can't, you can't effectively resolve them. And they're talking about um, how it's kind of, it's basically operates how Rails, uh, I'm sorry, how Ruby gems work now. And uh, there's this other system called Bundler and, and how it does things. I'm not I'm not an expert on exactly how Bundler works, but it does seem to uh, kind of make copies of things where you you can have things uh, a version uh, in the previous example that uh, I think it was library C I was using as the sub sub library that it will uh, you would have two versions of it you have the 1.0 version and the 2.0 version side by side and you can make those work and uh, they're apparently making noises about going to the Bundler route and somehow supporting that. I practically can't see how they can do that because Xcode, I mean, sorry, uh, Cocoa apps in general have a problem with namespace collisions when you bring in two classes of the same type. Uh, I don't really see how this is resol- resolvable unless you use something like my uh, 
my NS poor man's namespacing system. But oh, you know, maybe maybe those are going away into uh, Objective C to actually get namespaces. Well, maybe that maybe we'll get that in dubbed up. Who knows? Well, it also strikes me that if you're if you've got a setup like that where you use multiple libraries with multiple dependencies for each library, I mean that's that's a lot of overhead for an application. And I think it's true that Cocoa applications don't tend to have that kind of complexity in in the the resources that they they employ to get the work done. Uh, I I I think it's it's a kind of um, a, a product of our environment that we yes yes there are these that we don't do dependencies because dependencies are really hard and so our libraries tend to be kind of monolithic because if you're going to use any dependency you kind of want it to have to do a lot and kind of then stand alone because there's a lot of pain there um, I. I I really do think the future of software is many fine-grained dependencies, and uh, I think Cocoa, as it's set up right now, is cannot handle that whatsoever. Just yeah, from yeah, the from the class conflict type system, so mm-hmm. it's almost like we need a, a enhanced runtime to deal with this at all. So, yeah, definitely is it put it we hit the runtime wall if we're trying to get too fine-grained in today's runtime, and. Um, Oh yes, so here's another common misconception. CocoaPods is bad for the community because it makes it too easy for users to add many dependencies. And uh, he actually goes to point out that, uh, ironically enough, the original author of CocoaPods is, con- is convinced that using a lot of dependencies is a really bad idea. And um, I think in the bold software future, having lots of dependencies will be a good thing. But I acknowledge that today, with our primitive tools and how we communicate, uh, it's Practically and pragmatically, uh, probably a bad idea to have lots of dependencies, especially with Objective-C runtime. And so that's kind of the high-level uh, overview of CocoaPods and the criticisms thereof. Uh, I do want to take a sidetrack on terms of uh, other systems, uh, specifically frameworks, of how to deal with like packages of code that you want to use. And uh, Schwa actually mentioned on Twitter that frameworks weren't so bad. And, you know, frameworks um, kind of got a bad rap uh, for uh, for a lot of Mac programmers. And uh, Will Slippley's pretty famous criticism of, of it, which goes back to uh, kind of the bloat factor that we talked about previously. That uh, And he was mentioning uh, specifically in context of the Omni frameworks, because he used to work on it. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's one of these things where uh, Omni has, obviously have, has a lot of apps. Back, back then, they had a lot of apps. They have even more apps now. And they have, um, so they have a lot of uh, frameworks. They have Omni Foundation, Omni App Kit, Omni UI Kit, all these, all these different guys, right? And the problem is that at each layer, they've, so one app, let's just say yeah, Omni Grapple, needs this one uh, ability to uh, handle these types of exceptions at the foundation layer. Okay. But that all of a sudden, that means Outliner also gets that functionality. And that's, I mean, maybe you wanted that functionality, maybe you didn't. But it's one of these things where it becomes a kind of a functionality roach hotel where you, you only can add to it. You can never really go and preen it and remove the functionality that's no longer needed um, because these these t- frameworks tend to become monolithic in nature. And if you were to remove functionality, then uh, you'd break another app. So uh, 
the other complaint he had about these frameworks is that uh, they increased load time, the way the dynamic linker loaded. And this was definitely more, this definitely is a factor, even today. But it was definitely more of a factor back before Apple rewrote Dilid in, oh, I want to say 10.3, 10.4, I think 10.3. And do you remember the, uh, what is it, like rebuilding dynamic libraries phase that accompanied every install of oh, applications? Yeah. Right, right. And like how, it basically have to walk your entire hard drive and rewrite addresses based on that. Yeah, it could take a long time. <sighs> it was uh, updating pre-binding. That's it. Oh, yeah. it still has it still has that build phase in. It still has that phase in there, but it just goes by really quickly now. That's because uh, you know the story behind that, right, Dilid? <laughs> no. <laughs> that um, I heard this at Dub Dub, so I'm pretty sure it's true. That I mean, I like from like during the presentation <laughs> that uh, that. Apple is so Dilid is this very critical piece of the mock kernel functionality. You know, it's outside the kernel, but kind of also inside the kernel, and in terms of you know dynamically linking libraries and and processes, and it was uh, you know they kind of shipped with what they got in 10.0, and it was really hairy, and no one wanted to really take a look at it. So this, so they, but it was really slow. So they had all these kind of hacks, and and pre binding was kind of one of the hacks to speed things up. That it would uh, basically walk your hard drive and cache certain amounts of information, so that way it could then use it do a lookup table that would be faster when Dilid was actually invoked. And uh, apparently, circa ten three, I want to say ten three, uh, it they actually ran Shark <laughs> on Dilid, and they figured out where the slow spots actually were. And they were the, I don't know if they did a complete rewrite or if they just optimized those one spots, but all of a sudden, Dilid wasn't slow anymore, and pre-binding just could go away altogether. So there's so there's Apple eating its own dog food a little bit there. But anyway, yep. back, on, back on track. Mm-hmm. Um, so so frameworks, I think, altogether, you know, you definitely could overuse them, and they definitely had some disadvantages there. But I think if you're strict in terms of having very focused frameworks, um, you, you could kind of avoid kind of the Roach Motel type problem of frameworks often engender. Um, but that said, so frameworks were nice, and that's basically a reference to how iOS doesn't really have them. And it's not so much that iOS doesn't have them, it's that we don't have them. Apple has frameworks, and they have lots of them, but we as application developers, as app developers, do not. Uh, so there's been a lot of uh, kind of... Uh, Effort expended to try to get something kind of like frameworks, you know these, you know these code and local localized strings and images and you know these bundles of functionality that have resources attached. Like how can we effectively uh, package them up and reuse them across apps? And the best one I've saw, I've seen is from Jeff Verkoyan, and I'm probably mispronouncing his name, but we'll include a link there. And he has this GitHub project, which is pretty much a uh, a documentation effort, but it's a really good one, and it's called iOS Dash Framework, where he talks about uh, he basically reviews uh, two of the more popular routes for kind of emulating frameworks on iOS, and he talk he dismantles dismantles them, talks about how they work, and talks about their disadvantages, and he offers up his own, and uh, he goes into a great amount of detail. Uh, detail exactly how it works and how to get this to work. And you scroll through this document, it's very intense, and it's very long, and it's very well annotated. And so it's definitely kind of a cookbook type thing walking you through. But 
So it's hats off to them. It's a great write-up, and I think his architecture is sound. It's pretty nice in terms of all the trade-offs involved. He's addressed all of them. But that, I mean, you look at this cookbook, and you say, man, I wish this was automated, because I wish this was built into Xcode itself, because this pretty much solves the problem, but it's a lot of work to do. And uh, it it feels a lot the same way of, like, um, unit testing, how it used to be in Xcode, and, like, Chris Hansen had his three, I want to say, three parts series about how to get unit testing working right in Xcode, and it's like, yep. do this, mm-hmm. do that, do this, and it's like, oh, and finally, they... They actually automate that for you to the point where it's it's easy and it works and like even debugging works. Like, oh my god! Yeah. So it's this. You look at this type of um, this explanation, this document explaining how to do it, and it definitely smells of the same thing. But of course, the difference is that Apple doesn't really want you to use third-party libs, so uh, I doubt it actually will ever be integrated. And so. I also want to talk about CocoaPaws in comparison to, I would say, its primary competitor, which are Git submodules. Um, so, if you, Andrew, if you're going to go and use some code, would you actually just like grab a zip ball of it, or would you actually try to use a Git submodule of it? Um, at this point, I I know like like learning how Git submodules really work and and figuring out how to how to get to, all that to happen in my uh, projects is on the list. But as of right now, I would just get the the code. I wouldn't. Um, uh, I mean, unless I'm ready to tackle that issue, I would just get the code I, and check it into my own Git repository. I would not um, try to use submodules yet. Yeah, I, I would actually. There was like one thing. What was the thing that I was using? Oh, remember that application that um that did the uh, the formatting uh, that that the guy wrote like. Because we mentioned it. Oh right, right, yeah. Um, that checkout had submodules, mm-hmm. and I remember that there were. I I don't know if I had to do anything special, but you there do. were. There was yeah okay, so it took me a while to set that up, but then I was like, ooh wow, I've actually got submodules working on my machine. So that was that was cool, but I don't know if I could replicate it. You know, I've I know the pants on of submodules. I've used them a, a lot, and I didn't. You, I will not fault you for this ignoring them and just grabbing a zip ball or tar ball of that source repository and jamming it in there. I think it's probably the same sane thing to do. Um. So my so the the problem with Git submodules is that they're cumbersome and, and they're also fundamentally problematic, and that uh, the cumbersome in that. Uh, if you do a git clone on a repository that sub- has submodules, it's gotten a lot easier with the current versions of git, but you do have to remember to issue the dash dash recursive flag option, whatever, when you in, when you do the initial git clone. Like Git is not smart enough to pull down a repository and look to see there is a git submodule list there and then do the right thing on your behalf. Or, you know, maybe it's a security thing. I don't know. Maybe it could wind up, you know, recursively downloading the internet. But you do have to remember that flag. It doesn't hurt if if uh, you use it and there are no submodules. So you might just want to blindly always specify dash dash recursive whenever you do a git clone in case there might be a submodule hidden in there somewhere. Uh, used to be that, and it's still this case, if you pass initial clone, if you need to add a submodule, that first you have to do a git submodule add, and then you have to do a git submodule init, and then you have to do a git submodule update. And um, so it's a significant amount of pain. You have to make sure you do all those steps. And uh, that's, I actually 
it's funny. I wrote the steps in my uh, JR Swizzle open source package because I knew that that'd be like question number one: how do I integrate this thing as it gets submodule? And me myself, have, I found myself going back to that all these times because I know there's a bunch of steps I have to do to get these submodules to work. I know I've written it up and I wrote it up in JR Swizzle, so I just go to my own documentation I wrote myself all the time when I had to deal with submodules. Um, submodules are also problematic. In two really important ways, like when you think about what to use submodules for, you probably want to do things like add submodules, so you so they're cumbersome in that way, and then you might want to update things. But um, it turns out that this updating and switching branches are problematic. In terms of updating, and uh, there's this uh, book out there called uh, uh, Pro Git, I believe. Uh, although the URLs changed, but I'll throw a link in there to show notes. And I'll quote from that there, that when you run git submodule update, it checks out a specific version of the project, but not within a branch. This is called having a detached head. It means that the head file points directly to a commit, not to a symbolic reference. Are you serious? Yes, yes. Oh, my God. The problem is that you don't typically want to work in a detached head environment because it's easy to lose changes. So so, um, if you do initial submodule update, Commit that submodule directory without creating a branch to work in, and then run a git submodule update again from the super project without committing in the meantime. Git will overwrite your changes without telling you. Technically, you won't lose your work, but you won't have a branch pointing to it, so it'll be somewhat difficult to retrieve. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so the the workaround there is that you actually, before you do any git submodule work, you create a brand new branch, and you that's a work branch, so that way you can work in there, and then you have some semblance of order there. Um, it's also problematic in terms of switching branches. That uh, if you create a new branch and you add a submodule there, and then switch back to a branch without that submodule, what you'll have is a submodule directory as an untracked directory because Git apparently isn't smart enough to figure that out. Um, so you have a choice: you can either move it out of the way, or you can remove it. In which case, you have to clone it again when you switch back, and you may lose local changes or branches if you didn't push. So there's definitely like submodules as these as these ways of uh, you know trying to easily get people's code and stay up to date with them are is very thorny in t- in, in terms of the in terms of data loss ways. So that's pretty pretty bad. Um, well, in terms of actually working with it, right? I mean, right. Just setting it up such that you get it from the right places all together seems to work okay. But then you know don't. For heaven's sake, don't do anything with it. <laughs> right, right. It's, and basically, you're just putting landmines in your project. You're just waiting for people who don't <laughs> know about you know, the, the, the problems of Git module to be blasted away with by them. Um, so there is this app called Git Tower. And one of the very nice features that it has is that it actually uh, knows about these thorny issues with submodules. And so at a, in a high-level GUI way, you just can say, here, add a submodule. And when you switch branches, it will do the right thing. Apparently, when it updates, it will do the right thing and all that. So it will cover up all these problems for you, which is pretty nice. Yeah, that's cool. But I would recommend uh, kind of giving up on get submodules altogether. And there is this, uh, ex- I guess I would call it an extension to Git, called Git Subtree, which I've written about before. And I'll link to it. And uh, it's not without its own issues, but if you read my blog posting on it, it it pretty much works the way you you wish Git submodules would work. So um, the, the primary strike against Git subtree is that um, it it's not 
common, that uh, people aren't using it nearly as much as Git submodules. Um, and it's kind of in this weird state of limbo that it was it was actually taken into the main Git uh, Git repo, and that is now kind of like it's uh, like uh, a contributed type of tool that's sitting in the in the real Git repository. So it's kind of been promoted there. It's not like this weird project that uh, is out off on its own world. It's now part of the official thing. And so it should be installed as installed as part of the standard Git toolset. Um, that said, uh, this uh, guy Helmo uh, did some great patchwork on it in terms of making it a little bit easier to use. Because one of the things is that as soon as you have the ability to have these repositories, these sub-repositories, as it were, uh, making these subtrees that really easy to use, you tend to use them. So you might have uh, five, ten, depending on how fine-grained your, your repositories will be, which, of course, I think fine-grained is the way to do things. And uh, so then you get to this thing where it's like, oh, I've made changes in these three repositories, or I just want to get all the updates. So he wrote, and so basically doing a git subtree poll or uh, with a specific, specific subtree gets tedious for all three or all ten or whatever. So he extended it to write a push-all and a pull-all, which which works pretty much as you'd think, that it keeps lists of all your subtrees, and then it can do all this busy work for you of making it really easy to just push all your changes at once or pull all your subtree changes at once. And the uh, problem is that his changes have not been integrated into the mainline. And the guy who's responsible for those changes is not too happy with how he went about changing the code to do this. And there's basically, it's kind of like this formatting war going on where Helmo changed, I don't think even Helmo did, or maybe I'm also involved in this somehow too, that I made some changes to and reformatted things in terms of uh, where the shell script was actually broken due to formatting problems. So I fixed the formatting problems and... Um, Problem is, so now there's significant, you know, the diff looks pretty brutal because it's uh, there's some formatting changes, but it's, it, some of it is visual, but it's actually it's not just purely cosmetic; it's actually functional, and so it's a kind of a stalemate right now. So um, I still have to say that it's you probably don't want to use the one that's built into the main Git repository yet, and use I don't know, it's, I guess use Helmo's fork, which is sad. But anyway, that's a lot of talk about Git subtrees. So it's kind of in a weird place right now, but it's highly usable. Um, and I would recommend it over Git submodules any day. And that pretty much sums up for me. Uh, any questions or comments, Andrew? Well, <clears throat> I would say that I do uh, appreciate the vision of Objective-C applications being much having fine-grained uh, dependencies, being able to use a lot of little libraries um, all at the same time, uh, I just don't know how we're ever going to make that happen. I don't know how we're going to get there. I mean, I think what you've been saying, you know, the, the, the long story short, what you've been saying is, yeah, we're not there yet. We don't, we don't have a, a way to... Uh, we, don't, we don't have an unproblematic way to do that yet. And, uh, and so I guess we'll still be, uh, still be waiting yeah, it, yeah, it's definitely it's both a community issue and also a, there's a technical runtime issue here, yeah. and and really both need to be addressed. And you know, GitHub's a, obviously a great step forward in terms of sharing code, but I definitely believe that there needs to be some uh, a layer of semantic information that's layered on top of that, which might be expressible purely in Git. And that's why I have the entire uh, recommendation on my 
on my uh, blog about how to name your branches after semantic version numbers. Right. And that's really important step forward for developers to be able to know whether a given branch, whether they can cleanly just pull the changes on it or if they need or if they need to jump to another branch or what have you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're doing your part. I'm trying. All righty. So please visit our website, website, edgecasesshow.com, all one word, for our show notes, a link to our podcast on iTunes, and more. And we'll see you next time.